Okay. <laughs> uh, let me open us up in prayer, and then we will jump into the sermon, then have small groups, and then, yeah, that'll be the night. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that we can be here on this Friday, the last Unicoi of uh, June, and then July will be the last uh, month of the school year, church year. And so, Lord, help us to uh, cherish every um, Friday we have with one another. Uh, for the seniors who will soon, a lot of them go out um, out of this general area, and so I pray that they would be able to cherish the time they have with one another. And for the rest of these students, as things begin to uh, return in person, that they will um, just really appreciate and just really uh, yeah, take, make the most of the time we have together because tomorrow uh, truly is not guaranteed. So Lord, as we listen to your word, help us to uh, be changed, help us to um, be challenged by what you're trying to speak to us. And uh, yeah, thank you, God, so much for today and for all these students and counselors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so title of today's sermon is A God Worthy of Our Trust. And no one drew this picture up here. I just found it on Google Images, which I thought, oh, that would have been easy all along. <laughs> but you know what? There's uh, something about having pictures drawn by Ethan, Matthew, Clara that really send a message. So thank you guys for your um, labor of love. But that's our uh, topic our title of our sermon today, A God Worthy of Our Trust. Can we truly trust God? And here's a question I want us to think about as a sermon, um, as we go through the sermon. And the question is, can you truly, I should have put it I, can I truly trust God with our, my life, future, and decisions? So I want to ask you guys that. Can you truly trust God with your life, with your future, and with your decisions. A lot of times when we have problems, uh, what do you guys turn to when you have problems? You can just say it out loud. What do you guys turn to? Friends, yeah. Friends are good. Amigos, Peng <laughs> Um, What else do we turn to? <laughs> Anyone else? Oh, yes, the internet, yes. You know, I read once, the internet, it's a neutral entity. It's the people who make it good or bad. So that kind of says something about the world we live in. That's why the internet is bad, because of the people who um, infest it with content. All right, yes, uh, anything else? There's another obvious uh, maybe source that we turn to when we need help. What do you guys turn to? Parents, yes, good, parents, yes. I'm sure you guys are all thinking that. Um, so friends, parents, Google, the internet, Ask Jeeves. Have you guys heard of Ask Jeeves before? It was a website back then. It was basically Google. You just type in askjeeves.com, and you ask a question, and it um, says something back. It wasn't very accurate, but that was the thing back then. You would ask Jeeves. They wouldn't ask Jesus. Um, but that's what we want to focus on today. Can we trust God when life goes haywire? And so our preview, as we always do each week, what I'm first going to do is explain the biblical narrative, and second, we're going to answer the so what. Why does this matter? Uh, what's the theological implication? How should this impact my life? All right, and so recap from last time, if you guys weren't here last time, um, this is what last time, it was the big reveal in Joseph's story. Uh, this is Judah, the fourth son, the wretched son, but he does a character development, character change, turns over a new leaf, 
and he sacrifices his life. He says, I'll be your servant. Just let Benjamin go home to be back with my father. And Joseph breaks down, and finally, in this dramatic moment, he reveals to um, all his brothers that it was me all along. I am Joseph all along. Is my father still alive? And so, uh, word gets back to their father, Jacob, that Joseph is alive, and so we're going to, we're going to um, jump into that scene in today's passage. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis 46. Genesis 46. All right, looks like a lot of you guys are close to getting there. I'm going to start reading from verses 1 to 4. This is what it says. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Let's stop there. So, to set the scene, Word gets back to Jacob that Joseph is alive, and so he takes his whole family, uh, his sons, his, his sons' wives, their children, the cattle, everything that they own, and they make the journey to Egypt. And they stop at this place uh, called Beersheba, all right? And if you notice uh, in verse 1, it doesn't use the word Jacob, it uses the name Israel. And that's interchangeable with Jacob. Here, it, it kind of signifies an entire nation or family or the entire nation of Israel is migrating uh, to Egypt. It's like, um, if you've seen Thor 3, they always, they said over and over again, Asgard is a people, not a place. And it kind of signifies that a country, it's, yeah, the, the locations, the, the buildings, it's important, but what makes a country a country is its people. And so when all of Israel moves out of Canaan to Egypt, the whole nation is moving. But they stop and they camp out at Beersheba for the night. And so uh, Beersheba, I'm not sure if that rings a bell for anybody, but this is familiar territory to the family of Abraham. Um, if you remember in Genesis 26, chapters earlier, Jacob's dad Isaac, he built an altar at Beersheba, and God appears to Isaac and says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And even earlier before that, Isaac's dad Abraham, Jacob's grandpa, also offers a sacrifice in um, uh, chapter 21. So to Jacob, this is familiar territory. It's not like a brand new uh, location. And so I have a, a picture of this, just a quick sketch. And in the vision of the night, you know, the rest of the family is kind of camping out in tents, uh, little sheep, and... Um, the wagon from Egypt, and he has a vision, and God appears to him in the night. And for some reason, Jacob, he's, he's afraid. He, he's afraid of going any further. 
Have you guys ever watched the first Lord of the Rings? Oh, okay. I thought there'd be more people who watched it. But there's, a ma- there's two main characters, Sam and Frodo. They grew up their entire lives in this beautiful place called the Shire, Green Hills. Um, but the plot of the story is that a wizard Gandalf says, hey, there's this dangerous ring. You're hobbits, so you probably won't be tempted by the lust of the power of this ring. So you are going to go to Mordor, Mordor to destroy these rings. And as they are about to leave their town of Shire, of the Shire, Sam says, he kind of stops. And Frodo turns to him and says, what's wrong, Sam? And I forget, he says, one step more, and this is the farthest I've ever been outside of my town. And he's scared of taking that next step. In a sense, for, for Jacob, not that he grew up in, in Canaan. Remember, he fled a lot throughout his life. But he had been there for about the last 22 years. He was afraid of taking another step. He was afraid. And you have to kind of ask, well, why was Jacob afraid? Why did he, in the middle of the night, he couldn't sleep, and he had this vision for God? Why was he afraid? Well, first, maybe he's just comfortable there. I mean, if you live somewhere for 22 years, uh, you're going to be comfortable there. You know the territory. You know the land, the, the neighbors, the water sources. Uh, second reason why he might be afraid is Jacob knows that Egypt is dangerous. Why? Because earlier in chapter 12 and 15, God says to Abraham that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 100 years. So Jacob's thinking, wait, is this another country? Is this what God was talking about when he talked to my grandpa Abraham? Is this the country that's going to enslave my people? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Egypt is going to enslave the nation of Israel for 400 years. So they are, in a sense, walking into um, the country that will enslave them. But for some reason, God wants them to be there for now to, um, to preserve them from the famine. And then third he, reason why, why he might be afraid is because um, God also told his dad Isaac to avoid Egypt in uh, chapter 26. So Jacob's thinking, wait a minute, like, God, I know Joseph's alive. My son's alive. I love him. I want to see him, but he's in Egypt. And I, have, I remember that you told my dad and my grandpa not to go to Egypt. Is this really where you want me to go? I'll go, but I, I need you to be with me. And so this is why God appears to Jacob. And God does three things. Uh, this, I'm going to camp out a little bit longer in this first four verses. because I think it's really important. to. I think it really sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. Uh, So we're going to camp out here for a bit. But God does three things in this vision. Number one, he establishes his identity. In verse two, he said, or verse three, he says, I am God. That's crazy. For God to appear and introduce himself like, I am God. But not just the God. He is the God of your father, Isaac. So he's making it personal. I'm speaking to you now, Jacob. So first, he establishes his identity. Second thing that God does, he gives instruction. His instruction is, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. As we said earlier, there might be a million things going on in Jacob's mind of why Egypt is the last place he wants to go, but God says, don't be afraid. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, the third thing that God does is he refers to his promise. He refers to his promise. Which promise is that? Well, it's the covenant promise that he made to Abraham. He says, 
for there I will make you into a great nation. And this is word for word exactly what he says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It would be like if Jesus uh, came down here, and he was actually standing right here. I'm like, oh, Jesus, why don't you preach? I, I can't preach. And we'd be like, oh, Jesus, tell us something cool. And what if Jesus just went up to the pulpit? He said, I'll tell you something cool. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that's me, that whoever believes in him, that's also me, should not perish, but have eternal life. And we'd be like, oh, right. We know that verse. But the fact that it's coming straight from the source it's like you hear it in a different way. And for Jacob, that's sort of what's happening. He already knows the covenant promise that was given to his grandpa, Abraham. But to hear it again from the very voice of God himself in the middle of the night in a vision, that's got to hit different. That's ha that has to comfort uh, Jacob in a very deep way. I mean, think about it. We've never had God speak to us audibly in our life. It can happen maybe in a miraculous instant, but normally that's, God has already given us his word. He doesn't need to speak audibly for us to believe in him. So it would be crazy if God spoke to us. And God, so he, makes, he refers to the covenant promise, but he also makes another promise, and he says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So God personally guarantees, Jacob, go to Egypt. I personally will go with you. And not only will I go with you, I'm going to bring you back. You might be thinking, wait, what do you mean bring you back? Well, when, Joseph, when Jacob dies, his body is buried in Canaan, his, uh, where he uh, was settled. And so that's God keeping his promise to Jacob. But in a larger sense, it refers to the exodus. All right, so even hundreds of years before the Exodus, God is promising him that, yes, this is the country that will enslave you. He doesn't say it here, but he says, I will bring you out of Egypt. So he's already promising the 12 plagues. He's already promising to preserve the nation of Israel. And so Jacob, at this point, he's old, he's deathly afraid, and he needs this divine reminder to know, God is with me. I can keep going. I can keep going to Egypt. And so, um, this was what, what Jacob needs to keep going in the middle of the night. So fast forward where he is now, 12 kids later, many grandkids later, he has the strength to put his fears to bed and continue moving forward. Why? Because God promised to be with him and keep his promise. So let's see what Jacob does next. Let's look at verses 5 to 7. Uh, five to seven in the same chapter, uh, Genesis 46, if you're just uh, getting in here. Genesis chapter 46, and let's read verses five to seven. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So we see that everything and everyone of the family of Jacob moves to Egypt. And they go in the, uh, the wagons of, of Pharaoh, and this is a very 
this was very unusual. They, people would not normally uh, travel in Pharaoh's wagon. So it would be like if you had to get to, I don't know, church and uh, the president's uh, Air Force One chopper was at your house. Like, hey, special deliverer, VIP, bigger than Uber. We're going to take you to church. And <laughs> you landed at church in the helicopter. It's like, wow, that guy, like, he has some connections. And so the family of Jacob, they had this special status. They were going to Egypt by the blessing of Pharaoh um, to return to, to Joseph. And so I want us to notice also in verse 7, the very last sentence, it says, offspring. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. This is a very a word that in a subtle way reminds us of God's promise to Abraham to make him a great nation. And so this offspring, it's coming into fulfillment. It's expanding. All right, so now the following verses in 8 to 26 this details every person in, um, in Jacob's family. And I'm going to read it. I'm not going to explain every person. I'm probably going to mispronounce all their names. But I want us to just, as we hear these words, as you hear me mispronounce it, I want us to see that God's promise is being fulfilled. The family's growing. All right, so let's take a look at verses 8 to 27. Here's what it says. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's first son, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, uh, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Morari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, hey, we know them, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Aaron Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dina. Altogether, his sons and his daughters, number 33. Verse 16. The sons of Gad, Zephion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel, these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. Verse 19, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenoth, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Jerah, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. Fourteen persons in all. Verse 23. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jazer, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bil Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel's daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. Verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Let's stop there. All right, that was a mouthful. And they all came from this family 
of Jacob. You saw this slide maybe one or two months ago, but you see the 12 descendants here, but now we see also their, uh, their sons and their daughters, and I don't have an outline there. And I just want us to know that God is fulfilling his promise to make Abraham, his family, the nation of Israel, a great nation. Jacob himself, as he sees all his family in one place, wow, it's coming to pass, the nation of Israel. All right? And so, after this, we now jump to the reunion. All right? Another very powerful moment when Joseph and Jacob, father and son, separated for 22 years, finally see each other again. Let's see what happens. Let's look at verses 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Let's stop there. Notice again, Jacob sends Judah. Judah's the fourth son. Why didn't he send Reuben? Reuben's the first son. He should have been the leader, but as we've seen the past couple of weeks, that Judah is emerging as a selfless leader. And it's very poetic. If you think about it, Judah was the one who suggested to sell Joseph into uh, slavery. So he kind of broke off that relationship between uh, Jacob and Joseph. But now he's the one almost bringing it back together. He's going ahead of them to meet with Joseph, to build, be that bridge, to scout out ahead, and he's building that bridge together. It's very poetic, in a way, to bridge Jacob and Joseph again. And they go to this land called Goshen. It's a, what we know, it's a small area, very fertile land to raise sheep and livestock. And so uh, after 22 years, now is the moment we've been waiting for. Let's look at verses 29 to 30. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die. Not because he's sad, but because since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. And I have a picture here, a little sketch of Jacob over there and Pharaoh. And at long last, this very uh, powerful moment and they cry, and they hug, and they weep, and embrace one another for a very long time. These last 20 years, he's been haunted by his son's death. In a moment, it's been melted away, in an instant. And truly, this reunion is a result of trusting God and going to Egypt. And I want us to notice, I didn't notice that at first, but in um, the second sentence of verse 29, it says that Joseph presented himself. You don't notice it in the English, the verb present, but in the original language, Hebrew, that verb is often used of God. When, but it's not the word God presents himself. In other verses, it's God appears. God appears to so-and-so. God appears to so-and-so. Why do I make that subtle connection? Because it's all, it's, I want us to, to know it's a subtle way of saying that God is also here that God is the one orchestrating the reunion. He's orchestrating his plan to preserve the family of Israel. This is God keeping his promise that I am God, and I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And so Jacob is now at peace, and he's able, he says, he says to those around him, I can die now. I've wanted to die 
ever since I heard that you were um, torn up by an animal. But now I'm ready to die because now I see that my son, he is alive. You are alive, Joseph. And for Jacob, he just breaks down in this moment. As we move on to the final passage, Joseph now gives instruction to the rest of his brothers of how to interact with uh, Pharaoh. Let's look at verses 31 to 34. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the, my, who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of the livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from your youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. <laughs> Let's stop there. That's a weird way to end. Why are shepherds an abomination? Um, now, one commentary I read that says the reason was not unknown. It, it didn't really give a reason. Um, but I think another commentary said, maybe they're just suspicious of outsiders and strangers. They just want to know that whoever comes in, they don't want to uh, do a power play and try to fight to the top. They don't want to fight for political power. And so basically Joseph says, just tell Pharaoh that you guys are keepers of livestock. All right? You guys have flocks and herds. And he'll, uh, when he asks you what, what you guys do, just tell him that. And he says, and he'll, make, he'll allow you guys to dwell in Goshen. And that's a really good place for you guys. So don't, don't blow it. And that's basically what uh, Joseph is saying. Um, and so next week, we're going to pick up the rest of the story. But I want to stop here because now I want to answer the second part of the, uh, the sermon. So what? what? What's the point of what we just read today? And I want to remind us of what the question I posed to you guys in the beginning, which was, oops, can you truly trust God with your life, with your future, and with your decisions? Jacob was afraid, but he brought his fears before God. Remember the first scene when he has that vision. I want to focus on that in my application, because I think that's very, very, uh, I, feel, I feel like it, it really plays a central theme in today's passage. And he basically says, God, you're calling me to go to Egypt. I'll go, but I need you to be with me. I need you to go with me. And so when God responds and res reminds him of the promise that he'll go with him, Jacob trusts him. He moves forward. And so my question for you is, can you trust God with your life, with your decisions and your future? When life rattles your cage, it will reveal who or what you truly trust in your life. When you stub your toe or you clog the toilet, who do you turn to? Is it Google? Maybe because it's a very simple thing, but what if it's a college decision? What if it's what types of friends you want to make in high school and junior high? What if it's if you even believe in Christianity? Will you trust God with that? Imagine if God said, I am God, the God of your father. I will make you into a great nation. Go to Egypt. I'm going to be with you. What if Jacob said, I trust you, God, but you know what? That's really risky. Let me get back to you. I'm going to take my family back to Canaan, and we're just going to hang out there because this is really risky. I'm getting old. If Jacob did that, could you say he truly trusted God? Probably not. He had knowledge about God, but he did not 
trust God because trust always leads to obedience. If you trust something, it will lead to action. It will lead to obedience. Uh, let me uh, give you an example. Very easy one. Uh, can I have a volunteer? <laughs> Daniel, I saw you kind of stand up. Is that you being a volunteer? <laughs> volunteer, anybody? <laughs> I see people tapping and slamming people's shoulders. <laughs> Daniel, is someone sitting Daniel? <laughs> is Daniel chowing? Oh, he is there. Daniel, chow, get up here. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> Just stand in front of this chair for a moment. Um, Daniel, this is a chair. It'll support your weight. Um, have a seat. You have my personal guarantee. Do you believe me? Wait, why? It, it's a chair. I just grabbed it here. <laughs> well, um, but you just came out of the very same chair over there. That's right. All right, let's suppose you do believe because it's a very normal chair. You can inspect it. Inspect the chair. Okay, well, why don't you have a seat? Wow, it, it held him. That's good. Yes. Woo. All right, yes. <laughs> no, no, there's a second round. But let's uh, unpack this first round. I gave you a piece of knowledge that this uh, chair will support your weight. Um, and I asked, do you believe me? You said no. Um, I wasn't expecting that, but I was expecting you to say, yes, I believe you. And so you had knowledge, and it led to trust and obedience. You had a seat on the chair. All right, uh, get back up. Let's do this uh, one more time. Um, Daniel, I'm going to ask you to please stand on this chair, and you're going to fall back, closing your eyes, and I'm going to catch you, and you will not fall. You have my personal guarantee. <laughs> do you believe me? No. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, why? <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> so you have knowledge of my um, guaranteed promise, but yet you do not trust me, and therefore you do not obey me, correct? Yes. All right, see, so yeah, that's exactly how it works, but that's an even larger leap of faith. Um, if he did trust me, he would actually stand on the chair, and he would fall back with his eyes closed. <laughs> yeah, you guys want to see that happen? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Daniel, let's, uh, let's see this. <laughs> oh, yeah, actually, you know, I'm not going to force you to do anything. This could be dangerous. Are you okay? You want to go back? It's okay if you go back to your chair. Okay, um, Daniel Poo, help me. Get over here. <laughs> All right, Daniel. You can sit back, yeah. I wish I had a prize, but I don't have a prize. <laughs> so that was a very, um, 
practical example, eventually got him to trust us with the help of multiple um, strapping young lads. And so in that moment, let's unpack that second demonstration. He had knowledge about this um, challenge. He didn't trust me at first, but eventually he did, and that led to obedience. He actually stood on that chair, and he fell back, and thank you, everyone, who helped me. Um, and I'll make this point. Knowledge is necessary. No, Daniel had to know, like, hey, Daniel, he has to have knowledge that there's a chair here, and uh, we're going to catch him. He has to have that knowledge, but knowledge is not enough if you do not trust. Knowledge is not enough if he just said, oh, I have knowledge, and he just walks back to his chair. Knowledge is important, but you need trust, which results in obedience. For Jacob, he knew about the covenant promise. I mean, his grandpa, his dad passed it on from generation to generation, but that knowledge had to lead to trust. He had to keep going into Egypt. If he just turned back, we can't really say he trusted, um, trusted God's promise. And so I say all this because you guys have knowledge about God don't you? You guys grew up in church. You guys know Jesus died on the cross. You guys know that if you believe in him, that you'll be forgiven of your sins. But how many of us actually trust God with our lives? How many of us actually trust him in such a way where we obey him and that he's in the driver's seat? I think that number would drop because I don't think a lot of us like that idea. We want to be in charge of our lives because if we're honest, we like the idea of a loving God. We love the idea of being forgiven of our sins. We love the idea of going to heaven and not to hell. I don't think any normal person would say, you know what, Kevin, that's a really tough decision, but I want to go to hell. Like, uh, that sounds really fun, actually. I, I like suffering. No normal person would say that. Of course, everyone would choose heaven. But would, but would we give our lives to God? Would we give him authority in our life? Would we actually surrender our life decisions to honor him. And I think maybe for a lot of us growing up in church, maybe we've embraced a false Christianity. Maybe this Christianity isn't Christianity at all, but a Christianity that just says, you know what, as long as you pray the sinner's prayer with your VBS teacher, God, I'm a sinner, forgive me for my sins. If I do that, then I can just live my own life, my own rules, my own plans. You know what that is? That's not Christianity. That's just driver's insurance. You know what driver's insurance is? When you get your driver's license, you have to buy driver's insurance. Well, what does it do? Well, 99% of the time, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't make you drive better. <laughs> That'd be cool, um, especially for us. Um, but when you buy driver's insurance, it's only helpful when you get in a car accident. When you get in a car accident, you say, whoa, I have driver's insurance. It's going to cover this damage, and it's going to cover your injuries. I'm good to go. And it doesn't really change your life. You don't wake up wondering, you know what, I love my driver's insurance. No one wakes up thinking that way. And I think for a lot of us, we treat Christianity that way. You know what, God, as long as I pray the sinner's prayer, that's my fire insurance from hell. I can live life my own way, but when I die, I just pull out a card. God, I said the sinner's prayer, and you said you would forgive me, so let me in. And a lot of times, that's not, not a lot of times, that doesn't work like that. Christianity is not fire insurance, driver's insurance. It's not just something you sign and pay for and you pray a sinner's prayer for 30 seconds in VBS and you live life your own way. When we, if that's how you live your life, then you face God and you say, God, you know me, right? He'll say, I didn't know you. 
and you didn't know me. And that will be the saddest reality. And preparing this sermon, that's why my heart broke, because I know every person in this room, we're not all on the same page. We haven't truly given God. We haven't truly trusted God and given him authority in our life. My Bible reading plan this past week took me through Revelation. Scary for the non-repentant, but glorious for the repentance. I just thought about, there really is coming a day, whether in this life or somewhere in the future, where all hell is going to break loose. God's wrath will be poured onto the earth. His judgments will come. It will be terrifying for those who reject Christ, but it will be glorious and hopeful, and it will be the day we look forward to for those who have placed their trust in Christ. And I thought about, how come we don't live like this? How can we just wake up and we just think about, you know what, what am I going to do today? Uh, what homework do I have for summer school? What am I going to do this weekend? What am I going to do in the fall? What college or what high school? What classes? How come we don't live like that? How come we so easily forget about the things that really matter? And I want us to truly ask ourselves, do I really trust God in a way that I obey him and I give my life? To him. So where are you at right now? That's the question I want to ask you. Where are you at right now in your trust with God? Maybe for some of you guys, you just want to have fun. You don't hate God, but you just want to have fun in life. You just want to hang out with your friends. Church is nice. I like my church friends, but I could also be doing other things as well. I can focus on God later. Uh, maybe for others of us, we, we think God's important, but we also have to focus on school. That's important. Our parents drill that into our heads that we need a good uh, GPA in high school to get into good college, to get into a good job, have a nice house to impress our spouse, to be stable and comfortable for the rest of our lives. Isn't that the American dream that we all want? I mean, for other of us, we others of us, we enjoy other things like maybe sports, extracurriculars, basketball, swim, track, soccer, cross country, and Christianity's appealing. But at the same time, you have other things you're interested in right now. And maybe for, for others of us, we're thinking, I want to trust God, but what happens if I give him control? What if I just turn to a goody two-shoes and I just, I don't know, be sheltered my whole life? I wouldn't want that. All my other non-Christian friends, or they're, it looks like they're having fun. Why can't I do that too? Why, well, how come... How come following God seems like it's not fun at all? I just have to stay still during sermons. That, that doesn't sound fun. And what if there's other religions out there? How do we know those aren't true? Who are we to say that? Um, Islam, Buddhism, don't they have a say too? How, is it, how do we know Christianity is the only religion? And maybe there's so many things that really prevent us from fully trusting God with my life. So it is so incredible, incredibly difficult to trust God. It's easy to, to have knowledge. It's easy to know that God loves you and me. But it's a completely different ballgame to actually trust him with our lives. For, for me, my junior year in high school, I thought I was growing as a Christian. I was asked to be on the student leadership team. They asked me to be on hospitality because they thought, like, oh, you can talk to people. But then I realized I only like talking to my friends. I don't like talking to new people. 
Like, they look weird. I don't want to talk to them. How do you start a conversation? So I just hung out with my friends <laughs> the whole year. And I didn't really do my job as hospitality. And then my senior year, I wasn't invited back to uh, be on leadership. And I was a little bitter about that. And uh, I rebelled by ditching Friday Night Fellowship. So you know what? I'm going to help my friend, my college friend, Tony, and we're going to rebel. We're going to get boba because that's cool. Instead of going to church, we're going to get boba. You know what? I'm going to hang out with my high school friends because school friends are so much cooler than church friends. And you know what? We're going to go to Boomers because that's cool. We're going to play mini golf, and we're going to own those little kids because um, we're high schoolers or seniors. That was my way of rebelling. That was my way of saying, you know what? I don't need God. I don't want to trust God with my life. And eventually I found my way back to church. But it wasn't because I wanted God. It's because I wanted fun. I'm all about fun. I love fun. I love having fun with people. And throughout my senior year, sermons had little to no impact. Uh, but I still prayed before I went to bed. I still prayed before I ate. I still went to Friday nights. I still went to Sunday school. I still uh, went to winter camps and youth retreats in the summer. God was a part of my life, I would say. But he wasn't the point of my life. He wasn't the reason, the person guiding me, my decisions. He was just a small part of my life. But I needed him to be the point of my life. And it kind of continued that way, you know, throughout senior year and then freshman year of college. Even though I went to a Christian college, APU, and I went to chapels three times a week, which is, it is what it is. But that didn't really change my faith. In fact, I even stayed home. I slept in on Sundays because, well, my mom wasn't there to make me go to church, so my bed's a little comfy. I'll just, I went to chapel three times a week this past week. I'm good, right? And a lot of my first year of college was just sleeping in on Sundays. I didn't hate God. I still wanted to go to heaven, but he wasn't really the point of my life. And then something changed my uh, summer of my freshman year in college. Uh, again, I'm all about fun. I just want to hang out and eat cream barbecue, go to the beach, go biking, and everything that, that sounds fun. And my friend said, oh, you want to go on a trip this summer? I said, oh yeah, what are we going to do? We can go to a conference. We can go to a conference. Listen to sermons. What? That's not fun. <laughs> like, that's torture. And he said, well, I mean, my church, we're, we're thinking about going to this uh, conference called Resolved. I'm like, what? Like, wait, where's it at? Palm Springs? Oh, I haven't been there. All right, uh, let's go. <laughs> let's go to Palm Springs. That sounds fun. And I went there because I was bored, honestly. Uh, listening to sermons three times a day, that did not sound fun. But that conference, it changed the direction of my life in a very subtle way. The, I remember the very last sermon that night, the preacher preached about the last night of Jesus and how he was crushed on the cross for the sins of you and me. And he challenged everyone in that room, how will you respond? And I left that conference thinking about my life and realizing I had a lot of fun, but it wasn't very fulfilling. Anime, Naruto, biking, Korean barbecue, those are fun. But after you binge Naruto for a whole day, at night you're like, what did I, what did I do with my life? Like, I feel so empty. <laughs> Naruto is not enough. But Jesus was. And I realized, I realized fun is not, is not a sustainable way to live. It, 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 was a, it was a false god that I was trying to receive purpose and, um, I guess, meaning from. And I realized true meaning and purpose comes when I recognize that I'm a sinner 
and I place my trust in the blood of Christ on the cross, and that when I trust in him, I'm inserted into the bigger story, and I want to live for his kingdom. And it might not always be fun, but there's, there's a deep fulfillment when you are reunited with your creator, with Jesus, in life, um, in death to new life. And ever since then, I realized fun has an expiration date. Um, and, I, and I wanted to live for something more. And that's how slowly, after my freshman year of summer, I began to slowly give God trust, or I began to trust him in my life. It wasn't like a complete 180. It was, if you can imagine a, a huge boat, you don't turn around in like a second. It kind of slows down and takes, I don't know how long it takes, but it slowly turns around. And that was kind of my life that summer. And so how about you? Jacob trusted God and his promises. Despite the fears in his life, will you trust God? Will you give him the keys to the car? Will you give him authority in life? Here's my big idea before we close. Can we trust God? The answer is yes. We can fully trust God and obey his commands because through Christ, he promises to save us and to always be with us. This is the promise we have. If we trust God and his promise of salvation, we can trust that salvation, that he will rescue us when we die or when he returns. And we can trust that he will always be with us because in the Great Commission, before he ascended into heaven, he promised that he will be with us. So to trust God, this is the most important thing most important decision you'll ever have to make in your life. And everyone starts somewhere. In this room, everyone could be in different areas of the spectrum. Some of us could really be struggling with what, uh, what you believe. Some of us could kind of be on the fence. Some of us could say, you know what, I know what I believe and I want to keep going. All of us start somewhere. So wherever you're at, we all need God to change our hearts of stone and put his spirit in our hearts and cause us to love, adore, and ultimately trust him with our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we come before you, we know that every soul in this room will live forever. It's not a matter of um, how long we'll live. Everyone here will live forever. It's a matter of location. Will we be with you? after we die, or will we not? And God, I pray that you melt the hearts of stone for those of us who are resistant or just, uh, we just don't care or we're indifferent to the gospel, to your love, your offer, your free offer of salvation. I pray that we would truly trust in you. And may your power cause us to live for you and your kingdom to honor you with our life. Lord, I pray that discussion groups would help us unpack this and it will trickle down to the practical um, details of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.